0: Okay, I'm going to try to speak with a microphone in my hand. I usually drop stuff when I'm holding stuff because I forget that I'm holding something. So if I drop it, we'll just laugh and we'll keep going. Um, What are characteristics of a life that pleases God? Not a rhetorical question. What are characteristics? Holy. Holy, okay. Peace. Peace, peace, fulfilled with peace, yeah. What else? Loving. Faithfulness. It's like we're doing a series on faith, and you picked up on that, and you're like, hey, I bet faithfulness will come up. Um, Growing up in and around church, if you would ask me what kind of life pleases God, I would have told you a list of things that you're not supposed to do, and that pleases God. Like, to me, pleasing God was all about what you don't do. Church felt like an endless list of don'ts. But according to the Bible, the life that pleases God is a life of faith. That's what our passage today is going to say. If you want to please God, live a life of faith. It doesn't say, you know, never make any of these mistakes. Never have any of these failures. Never have any of these disappointments. It says, live a life of faith. Now that means that our messiest mistakes, our most painful regrets, the lackluster accomplishments that you and I can have in our lives, um, won't prevent us necessarily from pleasing our Creator. That takes like a big weight off my shoulders. Okay. Okay. I can mess up and still please him. At the end of my life, I can still say, this is a life that pleased God. If faith is the only factor between a life that pleases God and a life that displeases God, would you say your life pleases God? Mm -hmm. Not like how much you attend church or how much about the Bible you know or how much good you do, but if it came down to just how much faith you had, could you say, my life pleases Mm God? Now, Paul made it really clear. We don't earn the approval of God by doing things on the cross. Jesus traded the worst part about us for the best part of himself so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the goodness of Jesus instead of the mess that I've made of things. When God looks at me, he doesn't say, like, man, Alex, just messing up again and again. He says, hey, I see Jesus when I look at Alex. I don't deserve that, but that's the whole message of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. But the Apostle Paul also made it clear, in 1 Corinthians 11, he tried to live in a way so that others could emulate him as he emulated Jesus. If everyone in this room emulated your faith, would they have more faith or less faith? If everyone in this city had the same measure of faith that you have, would they have more faith? And it would change a city forever? It would burst into like a spiritual wildfire that changes the world? Or would the city fall into a a depressing gloom? The whole premise of our series on faith is that I believe faith can spread like a fire. Faith is contagious. If you exercise faith, if you live by faith, the people around you are going to catch it. We can borrow the faith of others by examining their stories and by seeing how their step of faith worked out. So what is faith? Just as a reminder, faith is acting in confidence on an unseen truth that you believe to be true. And we've been exploring these heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, trying to catch some of their faith, trying to get some of it to light our lives and get our faith brighter and hotter. This week, we're looking at one of these heroes of faith, and his name is Enoch, and he's in Hebrews 11, verses 5 through 6. It says this, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God took him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. Now, honestly, we don't know a lot about Enoch. It, it, literally, his story is found in these few short verses, and then in Genesis 5 verses 22 through 24. He gets a brief shout-out in the book of Jude. Can anybody remember the last time they read the book of Jude? You know, it's like one page, and it barely comes up. He gets a shout-out there. His whole story can be wrapped up like this. Enoch walked with God because he consistently lived a life of faith. He lived a life that pleased God. And so God... Didn't allow him to die, but took him away. That's his whole story, that's all we got. Now, Enoch is a really complicated character though, but not because of what's in the Bible about him. It's because if you Google search Enoch, a bunch of stuff comes up and you find all these books that bear his name. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this because it's a series about faith. It's not a series about how he got our Bibles. I, that's a fascinating series and we've talked about that in the past and we can talk about it again in the future. But just briefly, because occasionally you'll be on the internet looking up something about the Bible and say, what about the missing books of the Bible? Have you read the book of Enoch? And you're like, what? Are you just starting to read the Bible? You know, Sean said he just read through the Bible for the first time this year. He's like, there's more? You know, the, what are these missing books? Well, let's just briefly talk about it. There's first, second, third Enoch, around 300 years before Jesus, a book appeared called the book of Enoch. This was thousands of years after Enoch lived. Nobody thought Enoch wrote it. So when this book showed up 300 years after or before Jesus, no one was like, I guess Enoch wrote this. No, he just bore the name, the book of Enoch. There's a gap between our Old Testament and the New Testament of 400 years. There were other things written by Jewish authors during that period that weren't considered God-free. They didn't have a divine touch on that. This is one of the books. Now, This, uh, a Jewish myth had developed that because Enoch didn't die, that he had lived a life of faith that pleased God and had been snatched away, that he became the keeper of secrets in heaven. And so to the Jewish people, the myth was Enoch's the keeper of secrets in heaven. And so when someone wrote this book and the, uh, the gap between the Old and New Testament, they said, hey, let's call it the book of Enoch. That's like calling it the book of secrets like Enoch revealed these secrets to me because he's a keeper of secrets. Around 500 years after Jesus, as Christianity became the primary religion in Rome and Europe, two new books dubbed, Second Enoch and Third Enoch, arose. The Jews never considered the first book of Enoch canon official from God communication. The early church followers, um, some of them mentioned reading the book of Enoch, which they considered be informational, but not inspired, not from God. So hundreds of years after Jesus, as the church was sitting down, it was like, we have all these books, churches are using different things, we need to make it clear what is Bible and what's not. They sat down and they started talking about what books were going to be officially sanctioned and what books no one's ever considered to be from God. None of the Enoch's made the And there seems to be clear evidence that it has always been considered non-canonical by the vast majority of Jews and Christians throughout the time. And I just had to get a Bob Berger reference in there because I knew Darby when we watched this episode. Um, Tina, a character on the show, she's like non-canonical, 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 and it just like gets stuck in your head. And so as soon as I wrote those words, I was like, I gotta put a picture of Tina. If you've never seen Bob Berger, that means nothing to you, and you're like, what a waste of time in this segment. Okay, so what does this book of secrets actually have in it that's so juicy, you know, and so good? Um, The first book of Enoch talks about watchers falling from heaven, judgment in hell, and paradise in heaven. In fact, the book of Enoch, even though it's not part of the Bible, has unconsciously affected a lot of our thought in the West, in the church, about heaven and hell and angels and demons, stuff that the Bible doesn't say, but we've kind of picked up loosely from the book of Enoch without realizing it. But we'll deal with that in the future series. Today, I want to hone in on how Enoch's life pleased God. Do you think about God as being a being that can experience pleasure? You ever think about that? I don't usually think about Him like that. I imagine as a cold, calculating robot in the sky, keeping everything ordered and together. Our God, Yahweh, is an emotional God. He has feelings. He enjoys things. Remember when Jesus came to earth, he wept, he laughed, he ate, he he enjoyed. They talked about them singing a song together. Like, he sang and laughed and he played with kids. Like, Jesus was an emotional being and Yahweh is an emotional being. Not a cold, calculating robot in the sky. He loves and weeps and grieves and he enjoys things. There's things that God enjoys, and that's okay. That's that's awesome, actually. If He wasn't a God who had emotions, what a terrible relationship we would try to have with an unfeeling, robotic person. That's how what Darby has to put up with being married to me. She has all these feelings, and I'm like a cold, uh, calculating robot. So sorry, Dar. I wish that trusting without seeing didn't bring pleasure to God. That's what he says. It's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please him without trusting him without seeing. I would prefer that he show me everything, explain everything to me. Let me see it with my five senses and use my logic and say, okay, I believe that. Thanks, God. But different people find pleasure in different things. Darby finds musicals to be pleasurable, I find them so annoying. Like, they'll be telling a good story, they'll stop and sing about what just happened. Like, I just watched what happened, you don't have to sing about it, I just saw it. Like, don't sing about it, just keep the story moving along, you're boring me. But you might find it annoying that you believing in God without seeing him brings him pleasure. But I can't get mad at Darby for enjoying something that I don't. If she enjoyed all the same things that I did, how boring would that be? It'd mean I'd be married to myself, and it'd be so boring. It'd be so boring. So boring. By her enjoying things that I don't, I stumble upon sometimes things that I would never get to enjoy because I would never have given them a chance. I said how she loves musicals. Because of her, I watch Hamilton, and I love Hamilton. Hamilton's a musical, but it's actually good. And uh, I was like, I walk around now at the art center. I'll be mopping floors, and I'm like, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, just like my country. And I'm not going to waste my Shut! Up! You know, and I'm like mopping up, and you walk by me and they are like you weirdo. Know? You know, like. <laughs> but I, the reason I got to see Hamilton was because she loves something. She enjoys something that I don't, and as a result, I have a more full experience. God's a person. He has a personality. He enjoys what we believe without seeing. Him. I don't know why this is true, kids. The Greek word for please in this passage is, you are estos, which means to render good service. How long have you been practicing trying to say that? long time. Um, It means to render good service. If you have a waiter at a restaurant and they do a great job, you would say, you are estos. They provide good service to your table. That's the word being used here. Now, um, have you ever known somebody and they're like, I'll tip really well if this one thing happens. I remember this one guy I had lunch with one time and he told me, he says, I give a huge tip if my water glass never gets empty. And he's like, this is the standard. If my water glass never gets empty, you'd order a water. As long as it stays filled, he would give a really good tip. Now, God, I think is the type of person that even if you provided really bad service, he would give you a good tip. That's called grace. That's what the Bible's about, right? Um, at the same time, there is bad service and then service that he would compliment and say, you've done a really great job. And that's what we're talking about here. A life lived by faith is a life that God can look at and say, I wish we had more of that in the world. We perform good service to God by trusting him. Now, when I think about serving God, I'm usually interested in what I'm going to accomplish for him. He's interested in whether or not I'm going to trust him. Our job is your job, my job, what it means to serve God is to trust him. Yeah. That's the work he wants from us. That's what he wants. That's what pleases him. That's the mark of a good servant. That's the only thing that's going to affect whether or not he says we've done good or bad. Not how much I accomplished, but how confident I am in him. Our work pleases him when our work requires him. If what I'm doing for God can't be accomplished with him, Sorry, let me rephrase that. If what I'm doing for God can be accomplished without him, it boards him. There's no need for him to be involved. In fact, we tried to cut it out by doing it on our own. This isn't because he's a control freak and he's like, I want to be involved in everything. If you've ever worked for a control freak and they're like the smallest task, they're like, let me come along and just make sure you're doing it right. Let me just do it with you. Let me, and I'm like, just let me do my work. That's not God. He wants to be involved because he's relational and he wants to be with us and he wants us to want him to be with us. We're impressed with the things we can see. We think, God wants me to reach lots of people. What's the good news about him? He wants me to do big things. He wants me to draw big crowds, have big impact. God's not impressed with me. God's not impressed with our power or our money or our abilities. He's not impressed with anything we can see. He's not impressed in the size of our impact. He's impressed He's interested in the size of our trust. That's what impresses God. That's what he's all about. That's what he wants. How much do you trust? Not how much you see, how much you've accomplished, how big your impact in is. He's interested in our faith. God's impressed with the things we cannot see. God's impressed when we do what he asks, even when we can't always see the direct correlation immediately in our lives. Over and over again in the Gospels, uh, the only time Jesus marvels is when people exercise faith. In Luke 7, 9, a Roman comes to Jesus. uh, Jesus says, Jesus marveled at the man's response, turned to the crowd and said, I've not found such a great faith, even in all of Israel. The people who are supposed to be knowing me best and waiting for me. Matthew 15, 28, he praises a Samaritan woman. He says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted at the end of the day god wants us to trust him to put our confidence in him that's faith that's what faith is
1: believing that god will be faithful believing that god
0: is trustworthy to be saved is to put your confidence in jesus sometimes i spend all this time trying to figure out this complicated way to explain what it means to be saved and that simplest point is simply this trust jesus put your confidence in jesus become his apprentice because you believe what he said is true he is trustworthy you can be confident about jesus there's a lot of things i'm not confident about there's some things that i see christians doing and i'm like do i even want to be a part of this thing there's some things i read in the bible and i'm like this is confusing this is hard for me to accept some of these things are hard to believe but you know what i'm confident in jesus He's the most amazing person I've ever read about. And there's something about when I read his story or how he responds to someone or how he treats somebody. And I say, you know what? If there's some line drawn in the galaxy somewhere, I want to always be on the side that Jesus is on. Because I've never read about someone real or fictional, imagined Ordinary, whatever. I've never seen anyone like Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to be like him. And I think that if people lived and love like him, it would change the world. Because as I live and love like him, it begins to change me. And I'm pretty hard headed, Darby can tell you. I'm pretty yeah. stubborn. It takes a lot to change me. But somehow, by becoming like Jesus, I become a better Alice. John Mark Comer, pastor in Portland, who I'm kind of obsessed with right now, and Dartby's sick of me quoting him. Um, the opposite of faith, he says, isn't doubt. It is certainty and control. Mm. What's keeping you from faith is not doubt, it's your desire to have certainty and control. 2020 and, 2020 and 2021 has been a global realization that we only have a fraction of the control that we think we have. Like, we thought we had all this control over our lives, right? And then March 2020 happened, and I realized, I have no control over my life. Like, one thing can happen and my whole world is turned upside down. Um, I got furloughed from my job. I, you know, we were locked into our homes. Like, everything changed. It's a frightening feeling being out of control. I don't like it. I like being in control. I don't like being out of control. Uh, Back in Tennessee, I was teaching a small group this one friend of mine, his name was Justin, um, he said, hey, you know when you're drifting and you're totally, you get that sense of euphoria as you're out of control when they turn? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't know that. Happen. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know that feeling when you're drifting. I'm like, I don't go drifting. Like, you know, like that's just not who I am. He goes, oh, after church, we're going drifting. So we jumped into his uh, souped up. Honda, and uh, we went over to the ball parking lot. It was closed on Sunday, and it just rained, and the parking lot was wet, and he takes off across his parking lot at 50 miles an hour, and just, you know, pulls out the emergency brake, and we just slide across this gigantic parking lot in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I didn't know if I was going to throw up. I was going to pee myself. You know, I didn't <laughs> know what was going to happen. I thought I was going to die. It's the most horrifying experience of my life. I was so out of control. Then red, white, and blue lights lit up behind us, and uh, a police officer was like, what are you kids doing over here? And, uh, and Justin goes down to the window and he goes, officer, he's never been drifting. Officer says, oh, oh, you haven't? No problem. <laughs> Let us go. So I was like, what is the drifting thing? Does everybody do this? And I just, anyways, I don't like being out of control. I don't like drifting. I like being in control. Routine builds an illusion of control. Because the same things happen over and over again, we feel secure. We know what's gonna happen because the same things keep happening. Change, even good change, can be scary because suddenly we can't predict what the future might look like anymore. We're not in control. This is our last week at The Rock. That's scary because we've been here for years and it's familiar and predictable. We know that the roof's gonna leak right there and water's gonna drop into this bucket. It's just predictable, you know? It's not good, but it's familiar, it's safe. But if we stubbornly held on to only what we knew out of fear of what might be, we would miss what might be. We'd miss the art center. And I think it's going to be a lot better. Sometimes we hold on to what's familiar because it feels safe and we miss what's better. We naturally, as humans, we naturally move away from places where we feel out of control. We try to move towards places where we feel in control. We feel safe and we feel powerful. Jesus says control is an illusion. You don't have it. I don't have it. Everything could change in a moment. We have no control. We think we're trusting something we can see, and Jesus suggests there is something much more real, much more steady that we can't see, and it's Him. And we can trust Him when we're not in control. In the words of that great theological masterpiece, The Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, If you ain't out of control, you ain't in control. Classic for the ages right there. (laughs) Or as Jesus might say it in Matthew 10.39 and Matthew 16.25, you need to lose your life in order to find it. Some of us are holding so tight on our life, desperate for control, that we're never finding abundant life because we refuse to admit we've never been in control this whole time. The more you try to desperately claim to control, the more anxious you will become. Every part of life is lived by faith. Whether you believe in God or you don't, every part of your life is lived by faith. It's by faith that you think. You know what? I have a day tomorrow, so I should pay my bills because you know I'm going to be here. You don't know. Everything is faith. The sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we can really start living. So, does any part of your life require faith? Perhaps I should ask it in another way. Does any part of your life feel too big for you to handle on your own? Is any part of your life feel like it's out of control? Instead of freaking out about those parts, that's my natural response. As soon as there's something I can't plan for and prepare for and control, I start freaking out. Recognize that all these moments are opportunities for faith. Opportunities to please God. Opportunities to trust we spend most of our lives trying to eliminate the need for faith. God wants us to create opportunities for faith. He wants us to take risks, not based on some sense of thrill. Like I've heard some teachings on faith, and someone like walks out there they like, well, I'm jumping in front of a train. That's faith. I'm like, no, that's foolishness. Like that's not what God's saying. Not as a sense of thrill or some foolish passion. Like, well, I'm going to buy a Lamborghini and God's going to help me make the payments. Faith. That's called foolish passion. That's not faith but taking risks based on the character of god and the mission of god who god is and what he would do most of my prayers are about eliminating risk i pray about things that i don't have control of and i pray that god will give me control over them again that's my prayer life faith demands risk faith demands admitting that we're never really in control in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, Jesus tells a story about a king. He goes away. He leaves some of his wealth with three servants. And he says, hey, use my money while I'm away to make more money. The first guy uses the money, makes, doubles it. The second guy uses the money, doubles it. The third guy buries the money in his yard. The king comes back. He gets it up. It's all dirty in a dirty bag. And he's like, here you go, sir. I got your money back. I didn't lose any of it. And the king says something crazy. He says, you're a wicked, evil servant. Mm. Some of us, for fear of taking a risk, we're actually wicked instead of pleasing God. Mm. Sometimes I'm trying to play it so safe that I'm burying the opportunities that God gave me instead of risking a little bit to please you. A life of faith. Jesus, God. A life stressed over the control you never will have is wicked. So I think we have to end with this question. What step of faith will you take? What step of faith do you need to take? A step of faith might be talking to a friend about Jesus. You don't have to do it in a weird way or make it super uncomfortable. Just mention his name. It's something that he's done in your life. Or talk about something you've heard about him. Or just mention Jesus around you. That might be a step of faith for you. Maybe it's being baptized, publicly identifying with Jesus and saying, you know what? I want to let everyone know I want to be an apprentice in Jesus. I want to live and love like he did. Maybe a step of faith is letting go more of your money. Now, that's not me like saying, hey, give your money to the church. I know anytime a pastor stands up and talks about money, everybody's like, he just wants money. No. If you find another ministry and you say, I want to give to that, do it. If you find a good cause you want to give to, do that. But recognize that your money is on loan to you from God, and what you're trusting in is not your money, you're trusting in Him, and that means you can afford to be a little bit more generous with that. Darby and I have talked about, like, how can we be more generous with our money? As we've got raises this year, we've talked about, like, how can we raise our standard of giving instead of raising our standard of living? That's an act of trust, because we believe that God can do more as we give less, because we're trusting him more. As we give more, he can do more. I mixed that all up Trusting God about, uh, that God knows more about how your relationships look than you do. Um, Our culture says relationships should be wowed and loose. God said they should be faithful and true. Faith might mean praying for the politician you dislike rather than posting about them. Uh, An act faith saying, I'm not in control, I can't control this. Instead of fighting that, you lean into it and say, God, I think you can. Today, I want to lead us in a really simple prayer. If you just close your eyes and pray with me. Jesus, I trust you. Help me trust you more. Build my faith.